Hello there and welcome to the Gridiron Show. It's not the exciting introduction that we usually get from Will Gavin, unfortunately, but we are doing a little bit of a draft podcast with me and Simon Clancy over the next few weeks, bringing back the the college football band for a little bit more draft stuff than than the boys would usually do, and I'm sure we will loop back round with them on draft week and bring the whole clan together. But Si, you're with me today, how are you? Very well, thank you, mate. How are you? I'm wonderful, mate. I'm... I'm, I'm enjoying life at the moment. It's a very busy time, but a very good time. Ridiculously more busy now than I was during the season for, for a reason that will become apparent to listeners over the coming weeks and months. But, um, yeah, I'm very excited about the draft side. We've had free agency now. Um, I, I just wanted to start, I said to you, let's start by just talking about why we why we love the draft. I mean, you you for you, this is like a, a cottage industry for you that, that's been ongoing for... For a while, if you just want to talk about the process of, of getting into the film study process for yourself and how that came about and, and how you've continued to do it over the years. It's been about 35 years now, actually, which seems bizarre um, that I've really kind of followed the draft. Um, I actually think it's the best part of the entire season, frankly. Um, just the sort of the the exciting, random... I, I mean, I think it's the best non-sporting sporting event in the world I mean it's it, it's phenomenal it's fantastic the, the kind of the jeopardy that surrounds it the kind of the nobody really knowing um, and in terms of film study film study is actually not that has never actually been that difficult to do I mean back in the I mean, back when I was a kid, when I was sort of 13, 14, I used to, there used to be a video company based in Germany called Pontel, um, and they used to send you uh, videos, and I was a Florida State fan, so each week I'd send, uh, I'd get, a, uh, get an FSU game I'd also get the best game of the week, and at the end there would be um, there would be a kind of highlights show. There'd be the ESPN College Game Day final, and you just get to watching kids that way, really. Um, and the more I got into it, the more videos I'd end up ordering of different players and those sorts of things. And that's really how it kind of came about. I've been a fan ever since, really. Uh, and obviously, is the 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 proliferation of the internet and all 22 film and you know knowing where to find it i used to speak to the schools and they used to send me film and stuff um watching different players but you know the internet makes life so much easier now to watch uh to watch different players watch different talents so that's that's really how i kind of came about it got into it and the fun part about the whole the whole thing is now i've done a i'm doing a, a little project at the moment in which i've, I've kind of gone back at at the start of the draft and how it came around and it's amazing now to think that the first overall pick ever in a draft was not even would never never played a game. None of the guys did oh. who the Eagles drafted. Nobody knew it was happening. I remember going to to Philadelphia a couple of years ago for the draft, and there was a hundred thousand people there. When it was two miles from where the original took place, and um, it's just amazing what it's become. I chatted to Gil Brand about that recently, and, and that he's been in it for like four decades and the way it's changed and become this it's it's become almost the second biggest sporting event in the mm. US hasn't it I mean that's it's a crazy situation but also chat to Upton Bell the son of Bert Bell who actually founded the draft a few weeks ago and he was telling me just about how even the, even at the start his dad thought it would become as important as it's become but it's insane isn't it Si I mean you I can't really think of any comparison in sport. I'm aware the listeners will be aware of what the draft is and everything, but I just always find it fascinating when this time of year comes around to think about that fact that this insane scenario of this becoming this outrageous spectator event. And you don't have to go too far back into the annals of history to 
to look at when players only found out who they've been drafted by because they found out in the newspapers. I mean, that's that's not, you know, that's almost a generation ago. It's not that long ago. You know, you've heard players from the 70s talk about they only found out when, you know, they were out playing golf and and somebody, you know, when they got back to the clubhouse, somebody knew or a guy read about it in the paper. I think Archie Manning, I think it was Archie Manning said that he found out that he had been drafted in the newspaper. It was somebody of that era. You know, look, go back to the 1983 draft. I mean, there's a, there's a fabulous 30 for 30 uh, ESPN 30 for 30 about that 1983 draft. You go back to that ballroom with which it was in and, you know, no TV cameras, all that kind of stuff. When you compare what it is today, you know, or this year, what it will be like, at, you know, on the 25th of April. And it's, you know, it's become an absolute event. Look when it was in uh, Philadelphia a couple of years ago and all the people that queued up on the rocky steps and made it just this incredibly dramatic. I mean, next year is in Vegas. Lord alone knows what that will be like. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that Philadelphia one, I, I've covered like five Super Bowls, the Olympics. I've done loads of stuff, but that, I've never, ever seen anything like mm. that. I mean, that there was a point where you were stood on the stage and you could just look out. And First of all, I've never seen that many people. I mean, I think there were over 100,000 people there on that opening night. And and it's to watch a guy read names out. I know. Of, of, all, of, the, of all of the NFL achievements, I, I always think that the draft is the most audacious racket of all because yeah. it's just it's just incredible that certainly from a from an from a spectator point of view of going to the venue it's become astonishing yeah. because it's a great it's a thing to watch on tv but to actually go and attend it and the stuff they do around it is is awesome and it feels like since they moved it around these different venues they've they've kind of grasped that even further and it, it i mean the is, there might be a draft on the moon at some point. You know, it, it gets it gets that ridiculous, doesn't it? It, it is crazy. I mean, for fans, I mean, I remember back in the UK being, again, sort of 15, 16, and it was either waiting until Monday to get the International Herald Tribune or listening to the Armed Forces, and that's what it became, listening to the Armed Forces Radio Network on a, you know, because the draft was on a Saturday and a Sunday. So it was listening to the Armed Forces Radio and, and hearing who your team had taken in the first round and what the picks were and hoping that the reception stayed good enough. I mean, what tended to happen was, let's say the Dolphins were picked. I can always remember when the Dolphins drafted Util Green, the wide receiver out of Miami, with a 16th pick. And I can remember, you know, whoever it was, staff sergeant, whoever, reading out the um, the picks and getting to pick 14. And the, oh, it started to go all fuzzy, not hearing who the Dolphins had picked and come, coming back in at like pick 18 and trying to have to work out by a process of elimination who, it, you know, having having scrolled down every single name having to work out all the other 27 names because obviously there were only 28 teams at the time trying to work out which team or which player hadn't been picked they got down to like three we've drafted one of these three players I'm pretty <laughs> sure um, but yeah um, imagine how it's changed now yeah I mean you you aren't far off Mel Kiber in terms of years you've been doing it which is why I always feel incredibly fortunate that at this time of year I can come to you and ask you the question I'm about to ask you. Mel, Mel, Mel's a funny guy because Mel, I mean, he gets a lot of he gets a lot of um, negative notoriety, certainly from American sports fans, American draft fans, and stuff. But Mel's the original guy. I mean, Joel Buchbaum from Pro Football Weekly and uh, Mel are, are essentially the two uh, heroes is the wrong word, but the two influences, I suppose, for myself. You know, and for all the Mel's TV work and the argument with. Um, the argument with the Colts GM, or you know, on ESPN, all those sorts of things. Mel used to produce, uh, and unfortunately stopped doing so about three years ago. But Mel used to produce a pre-season and a mid-season prospectus, which was, and I've got you know 
2022 of the damn things. But if you go back and look at the guys that he was picking, and, and what Mel would do would do each position, so quarterback through to cornerback, and seniors, juniors, sophomores, freshmen, and then the top 100 high school list that he would do with Tom Lemming. You go back and look at some of those lists, and Mel's prospectus, prospecti, prospectuses, prospecti, were, I mean, he nailed so many players three years out, four years out. Do you know what I mean? In terms of guys that were... I also I also think that even now he's still one of the best. Absolutely. In terms of... I agree, it's almost like he has become a little bit of a caricature mm. of himself and that almost takes away from the... Certainly in the eyes of people from the analysis. But if you look broadly at what he puts together every year, I would say he's still right up there. I think the worst thing that ESPN could have done for the draft was try and combine Mel Kuyper with with, with um, Todd McShay, who, are, yeah. who I feel is a very, very poor man's Mel Kuyper or Mike Mayock. You know, Mike's kind of taken over, really. But, but Mel will always be the original. And, you know, his blue book that he released, you know, a couple of weeks before the draft for many, many years was utterly, you know, that was the, that was the Bible. It really was yeah. the Bible. So... Anyway. Well, you also have started to produce what I like to consider a UK Bible of the draft. <laughs> that admittedly can never be as detailed as those draft guides, but ultimately our thing is trying to we try to give the the big information that people need to watch the opening round, but also you you put together a list of guys who you really like all the way through the rounds and actually Sai, as you point out to me on quite a regular basis, have got a good hit rate with those. I know you mentioned Philip Lindsay was was on there last year. I feel like Juju Smith-Schutz was a guy you were incredibly high on compared to others. Baker Mayfield was your number one quarterback up until uh, right from the start last year. The year before, I remember me and you talking about and deciding against late on having Pat Mahomes as the main guy on the cover of that. And I can't remember where we settled on Mahomes in the rankings. Like, yeah, I feel like it might have been just number two, potentially number one, but he was certainly in the discussion. So your track record, certainly since we've started essentially producing the Simon Clancy draft guy, has been <laughs> a strong one. So better, I want to... Better lucky than good, mate. Well, you're stacking up a lot of luck in that case. <laughs> um, so I'd like to start by asking you what, what is this draft class all about? Tell us the, the, the headlines that we need to know. Well, I, think it's, I think it's generally a good class. And it's a good class if you're looking for players in the trenches, especially in the defensive line. It's an it's a outstanding defensive line draft, um, both at end and inside at tackle. And obviously, you know, the way that teams play, you know, you don't just see 3-4, three, 4-3 four, four, three defences anymore. The, the, the way that fronts are mixed, you know, you're looking for versatile guys who can rush inside out or outside in, depending on what you're looking for. Guys that can drop off in some of those sort of tiger formations and... Uh, and rush the passer but also you know how versatile are they against the run can they can they um can they set the edge can they drop back in coverage you know you're looking for for, for those sorts of guys then th- there's a lot of those players in in this year's defensive line draft not great at linebacker i think it's a really deep group of cornerbacks a phenomenal group of safeties actually i think there's a really strong group of safeties uh, offensively the interior offensive line is very strong i think there's a number of good tackles tackles potentially who kick inside to guard as well and even to center i think overall uh, you know if you're looking to to retrench your your trenches essentially this is where you would look uh, wide receiver, I think it's a mixed bag at receiver. I think actually the, the the quality of the receiver class comes in the sort of third to fifth round area potentially. A few good running backs, but again, you know, the position has been sort of downgraded a little bit, I suppose. And what you're looking for now are the, either the kind of the guys that can, 
you know the factor backs, the three back, the three down guys who can block, carry, and catch the ball, or you know either electric guys who can you know come in like a Philip Lindsay uh, and just make big plays, or guys who've got you know terrific hands and who can also pass protect who can use on third down I think it's a decent tight end class I think certainly at the top of the tight end class it's good and actually really the, the one the one area that is particularly weak is the quarterback class um, you know uh, as a Miami Dolphin fan without a quarterback really um, we've been friends and I have been discussing where we would rank the players in this class compare to next year because this time next year if everything plays out as it feels like it might do at the moment you're looking at a potential bonanza of four slash five slash maybe six first class first round quarterbacks, including a transcendent Andrew Luck type talent in Tua Tungavila of Alabama, um, and I think really you'd probably put Kyler Murray maybe three or four, maybe probably three. I think if he was you know, if you combine if you combine last year's draft, this year's draft, and next year's draft, you'd probably put Murray three slash four behind Mayfield behind Tunga Vailoa, maybe behind uh, Justin Herbert. Dwayne Haskins would probably be sixth, fifth or sixth, something like that, I think. Um, and then really beyond that, you know, Drew Locke, you know, a team is going to fall in love with Drew Locke, but there are certainly some issues there. And then, you know, it really falls off a cliff and it's pick your poison. You're looking for a guy who can potentially, you know, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of backup quarterbacks in this year's draft. So it's a varied class. It's a deep class in certain positions, but as always, it's, um, it's very exciting. And what, what do you think as someone who has been judging this for a while about the Kyler Murray height question? Because it feels like, it feels like it's a question that, has been answered now with with Russell Wilson and 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 maybe to an extent of Baker Mayfield as well. Do you think that? Do you think smaller quarterbacks can succeed now and they wouldn't have been able to before because the games change, or do you actually think that smaller quarterbacks could always have succeeded? It's just the fact that it's taken a couple of guys like Russell Wilson, Drew Brees, to to make people realise that. It's difficult. It's a great question. It's also a difficult question to answer because gener- genuinely, I, I don't know. I think it's probably a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. We certainly wouldn't be having this discussion ten years ago. You know, Kyler Murray would be a baseball prospect, or you'd be looking to move him to a different position if he was choosing football. Um, I, I think you know Russell Wilson is something of an outlier. Uh, Drew Brees is obviously something of an outlier. But you know, you look. There aren't really only two quarterbacks under six foot who have made any decent waves in the NFL and we've been playing the game a very long time so that should tell you something about why teams are concerned um, but is that not a scenario similar to the fact that there were no successful black quarterbacks for the opening 50 years of the league in that it was because they weren't getting the opportunities rather than a, a, a kind of suggestion yeah. that they couldn't do it yeah I mean potentially Potentially, I mean, I'm, I feel nervous classing racism and heightism as. as yeah, but I, I, I take your point. The... I take your point, but um, I think I think what will happen, and actually was having this conversation today about a, a quarterback at Houston, University of Houston, called Derek King, who's five yeah. foot eleven, um, and he's very similar to Murray actually. Um, and we were saying that if King has the same season this year as he does last, as he did last year, and if Kyler Murray is a success in the NFL then I think that would make Derek King a first-round pick next year yeah. because of because of the fact that people are no longer scared of the quarterbacks like Murray. Um, 
what do I think? I think that he'll go first overall, uh, uh, unless Arizona are playing an incredible game of chess that involves Josh Rosen, because Josh Rosen really, you know, I don't think there's any way that you annoy your, your, your starting quarterback, your franchise quarterback, by essentially saying that he's the starter for now, unless Josh is in on the whole ruse yeah. that we're going to try and get as much capital as we can for a team that's desperate for Kyler Murray. There's still part of me that thinks that the Cardinals won't take him. But there is also a part of me that thinks they absolutely will take him. I, I don't buy that Cliff Kingsbury believes that you know he can do more with Kyler Murray in his system than he can with Josh Rosen. I think uh, I just think that it, I mean it would see it would be phenomenal for Steve Kime as a as a general manager who's in a lot of trouble to draft Kyler Murray a year after trading up to draft Josh Rosen. So we will see. But to, to spin back and answer your question, I, I think that if Murray is successful, I think that will open the door for a number of height-challenged quarterbacks over the coming years. The guy who would have fascinated me, and unfortunately we're not going to see it because of of that horrific injury in the college season, was Mackenzie Mill. Mm. Because he he's a guy who doesn't have anything like the athleticism of Kyler Murray. But in reality, is probably... In terms of anticipation and timing and some of the things like that, one of the better guys I've seen in college in, in recent years, I just think he would have been almost a more fascinating discussion point than, than, than Murray. And unfortunately, we'd have seen that play out as well next year because he would have, I think, stayed one more year mm. at, at, at UCF. So he, he could have been a guy who, who profited from that as well. But I'm sure, as you say, if Murray is successful, that there will be other guys. I do want to ask you a little about Dwayne Haskins as mm. well, because he's a guy me and you have discussed a lot over the the, the college, college podcasts and, and, and over, over the season, season on our own in, in our WhatsApp group and things like that. that. And my view of Haskins is that I would be massively concerned using a high pick on him. And I can understand why people like what they see. And, and I love what I see from Dwayne Haskins when there's, when there's no pressure on him mm. in particular. But I've rarely seen a top-line quarterback prospect crumble under pressure in college as badly as Dwayne Haskins does. Is that what you said? Yeah, I mean, he, he is a fascinating study for, for that very reason. And I, I think two things on that. I think one, you know, I don't think teams should be forced into taking it a guy like Dwayne Haskins just because they have a hole at the quarterback position. You take the guy that you want to take, not because social media or, you know, the print media or the television journalists think that that's what you should do. Just because you have a hole at quarterback, and again, I hate to keep referring to Miami, but let's just take them as an example. If Chris Greer and Brian Flores truly believe that Dwayne Haskins is going to be their starting quarterback moving forwards, then they should take him. But if they do not believe that Dwayne Haskins fits their mould, then they shouldn't take him and they shouldn't be forced into taking him just because that's what they believe everybody else believes they should do. Does that make sense? Yeah. In terms of Haskins' overall ability, I think he has an erring accuracy. I think he can make all all the throws that you're looking for from a starting NFL quarterback. He's big. His arm is strong enough. It's not massive, but it's strong enough. But he can throw back shoulder. He can make those those sorts of throws that you look for in NFL games. Now, people talk about West Virginia's Will Greer and say Greer should be a first rounder. Greer does not make NFL throws. And what you talk about NFL throws is the sort of those come, you know, the comebacks, the digs, the outside, outside the numbers throws, the big down the sideline throws that show off the arm strength, where you're throwing essentially, like I've just said, throwing the guy open. These are not system created throws. I mean, 
everybody has system created throws for them that's a that's a given at the college level but when you're transferring that and looking at the nfl level and looking as to whether or not a guy can transfer his ability and his talent to the nfl level then certainly in terms of throws haskins has that ability and i think he showed that at the combine that he was able to do that i i think the concern and you rightly say that it's the pressure concern that is a huge issue for me he is not mobile at all um, he struggled. Mike, there was a three-game stretch. You, you, people talk about looking at guys' best games. You look at Dwayne Haskins against TCU, certainly in the second half uh, at Jerry World uh, early in the season. Uh, he was phenomenal in the second half. It was a, a, an outstanding performance. You look at his performance against Maryland, where Ohio State was down. They weren't playing very well. They couldn't stop anybody on defense. They couldn't get the running game going. Haskins, although he didn't play particularly well, he just showed a will. He carried that team on his shoulder. You know that would have knocked them out of all hope of you know any contention for a national championship. You look at the uh, game. I'm the Big Ten. Absolutely, the Big Ten. absolutely. Then look at the game against Michigan. You look at the game against Northwestern, and then you look at the game um, in the uh, in the Rose Bowl. He played very very well in all three games. So you, you take the peaks, but then you look at the troughs. First half against Penn State, he was atrocious. And Penn State essentially just blitzed and blitzed and blitzed and made it very uncomfortable for him in the pocket. And he didn't know where to go. He couldn't move his feet. He couldn't create time. You look at the, you know, look at. I think the, the concern for me was how badly the accuracy did. Mm. Because he, he's got, I mean, he's, as a pure arm talent with nobody anywhere around mm. me, he's spectacular. But the accuracy went so badly. Look at two of the guys who, who have been. Uh, over the past two generations or past generation really of uh, who have no um, ability to run but have uh, innate ability to manipulate the pocket slide use great footwork and retain their accuracy under pressure and that would be Dan Marino and Tom Brady two of the very best to have ever done it now neither of them you would ever say are going to be mobile quarterbacks but both of them have a just innate use that word again, innate ability to just be able to move, slide, step up. Marino used to knock people's hands away. I mean, Howie Long always talked about how Marino would knock his hand down, still retaining the ball in one hand, and then knock his hand down as he's about to take him for a sack and then get the ball away. Now, it's not just the ability to do that, but then it's the ability to locate and be accurate down the field, which those two guys had. And Haskins didn't. I mean, I watched some Justin Lane, the Michigan State cornerback the other day, a game that you and I were at. Um, yeah. at Spartan Stadium again another atrocious performance by him under pressure a lot throwing just wild throws out of bounds incompletions missing guys and then the following week against Purdue when they got blown out um, which really ended their national championship hopes they lost 49-21 again just an awful game for Dwayne Haskins and you think which Dwayne Haskins am I going to get because if I'm a defensive coordinator I'm a you know a Steve Spagnola or a whoever it is that I'm going up against in the NFL on a Sunday I'm just going to be thinking Blitz this kid, make the yeah. pocket messy, make it crowded, bodies all over the place, and he, his accuracy is going to go to pot. That would be the one thing that, that really, really concerns me. It may, for me, the major concern is the fact that it's at the college level as well. I mean, yeah. I've seen guys in, in college who, even under pressure, look great, and then when they get to the NFL and the pressure comes that second quicker and there's, there's less windows, look awful. But Absolutely. The, the concern for me is Dwayne Haskins is playing on a team that there is no game Ohio State played last year in which they weren't more talented than the other team by a decent margin. So for me, that would be the major worry as well, is he's he's got everything in his favour. I mean, you look at the, the fact that their offence looked so bad with the wet, wide receiving weapons that they had mm. in particular, was... was was it, was that's not a good sign for for Dwayne Haskins? Absolutely, absolutely. You look at 
Paris Campbell, McLaurin, all those guys out wide. You know, the fact that they were, I mean, I, I was astonished at how bad he was when we went to, the, to that Michigan State game. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to, it's hard for me to, to shake that in my mind. He would have big, big bust potential for me. Yeah. And I, you mentioned the trip there. It follows us on nicely. Part of what we're doing in the magazine is, is some of the bits that we'll talk about over this. And, and one of the big things we did at, at Michigan is we, we sat down for, for kind of 45 minutes an hour with Rashan, Gary and Chase Winovich. And for me, they, they are almost a microcosm of the draft process in that both productive to a degree in college. Actually, Winovich, I thought, was the more, more productive. More productive, definitely. Um, definitely. But Winovich is kind of the... the I'm trying to think of the archetypal player who you look at him, you know, like a Rob Ninkovich type who just really gets every ounce of himself ability-wise and actually is ahead of the game of someone like Ninkovich because he was outstanding in college. college. Uh, Rashan Gary is, you know, know, he's Mario Mario Williams, he's Jadavion Clowney, he is the freak of nature athlete in that, you know, there are certain things Rashan Gary can do that Chase Winovich will never be able to do naturally. But in reality, I think we both agree that there is also a very good chance that Chase Winovich becomes the better better prospect. And that's what makes this process so fun, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, and you've really just summed it up there. I mean, both guys are fascinating guys to talk to. Uh, Winovich is the kind of the long-haired, charismatic, energizer bunny, never gives up a play. Um, you know, he, I, think, I think he has the most chase downs in terms of guys hustling 20 or more yards down the field of any defensive end in the class that kind of shows you the sort of guy he is he's not going to be von miller in terms of his ability to bend and dip and and get around the edge um you know but what he does possess is that kind of will to the will to win he's going to be a guy that will come into your locker room uh, and just be a great leader he will be somebody who just gives everything on every single play. And you can line him up in, you know, is he a 4-3 defensive end? Is he a 3-4 outside linebacker? I think he can probably do both. I mean, you look at him, he was a tight end who got switched. He worked ridiculously hard, carried that kind of chip on his shoulder. I mean, he thinks that he, you know, you, you watch him on tape, he's a little bit right-hand dominant, I think. I, I think he needs to use his left hand a little bit more. His pass, through, his pass moves and his rush stem from that sort of right arm. His rotation of the hips is very right-sided as a pass rusher. Um, I think into I think what essentially, and he would confirm that. And in fact, he did confirm it in the interview. He needs to be a bit more ambidextrous in terms of the way that he he fights off offensive tackles. But he's not going to be. He's not the planet. I mean, there's a word that, that that scouts and coaches use about guys who are just f- athletic phenomenons, which is planet theory. Guys that essentially just have been created by something special. Where have they come from? Who who made a kid like this? Who built, you know, if you're building a guy, this would be the, the body that you would build. And Rashan Gary is absolutely that. I mean, you know, you shake hands with him, he's got absolute shovels for hands. He's six foot six. He's, he was 283 pounds when we saw him. He is an athletic freak. He ran in the four fives at the combine. I mean, he's physically... Everything that you would look for in a defensive end could play 3-4 end, could play 4-3 end, could play tackle, probably in both formations, frankly. 
and yet the production isn't quite there. And it's a microcosm of the entire draft, as you just said. Winovich is the guy that week after week was there and showed up in the stats, showed up on the film. And Gary, certainly as a, as a junior last year in 2018, didn't have the production that you were looking for. I mean, he hasn't taken the step forward. You look at somebody like Christian Wilkins, the defensive tackle from Clemson, who should also go in the first round. Wilkins' progression year on year, he has made leaps and leaps and leaps and leaps in the four years that he's been there. Every year you can put on the tape and say, he's better at this than he was last year. He's better at this than he was last year. Gary kind of hit a plateau. And I think, you know, for me, Rashan Gary has high bust potential. He's a great kid, great athlete, but you just think, you know, you've got to be able to, you know, you watch, again, like you do with Winovich, you watch him on film, he'll get to the point where he's going to bend the edge uh, and he just can't run the arc the way that you'd expect a guy like that to do, given his burst and his athletic ability. And that, for me, is a concern. So somebody's going to have to, he's going to need to be coached, he's going to need to be taught how to play the game and you're going to have to find a, a specific niche for him to fill because if you're trying to hit for him, if you're trying to look for him to be sort of you know master of three or four different things I don't think he's going to be able to do that and it, it, it's very interesting and they're two very interesting names in a in a group of 15 18 22 defensive ends defensive tackles who who will uh, go you know I would say in the first four or five rounds of this draft Hazel Irvin here at Spencer Park in Coventry, where 37-year-old Emily and her mates are taking part in a fancy dress fun run to fundraise for sports relief. And that means I've been lumbered with her dog, Tilly. Oh, Tilly, not over there. And they're off. An impressive array of costumes on show today, everything from penguins to pirates, all taking on poverty and injustice. Respect. Spectacular. Poverty getting crushed by Katie on a space hopper. Easy. Coming into the final stretch now, and it's neck and neck. I think we're in for a photo finish here. But it's Suzanne smashing through injustice. She is a winner. Hey, Tilly, get off my tutu. Tilly, sit. You can help change the world too. Just get your exclusive Sport Relief merchandise at Janeiro's Sainsbury's. Sport Relief. It's game on. This message was brought to you by Acast. Is the interesting part about this defensive line draft class that, and, and this feels like it becomes a cliche, but it is all, always true of a certain position group in a draft, is this the one where the defensive lineman, a certain team will take 10th overall, is it's a, a player that the team at 11 might take 40th overall, but then it flips around as well in that different sizes fit different teams and actually it's so strong that there's a bunch of guys who could who really we don't know where they'll land outside of maybe the top guys like a Nick Bosa or a Josh Allen. A little bit and that's part of the scouting process isn't it you've got to work out what is best for your team stop putting square pegs in round holes but I also think that this is a defensive line draft that you're going to get a guy at say 45 like let's say Charles Amenahu of Texas who gives you that Trey Flowers vibe played very well at the senior bowl you're probably going to get him at pick 45 most drafts you'd probably be able to get him at pick 18 pick 15 maybe so you're going to be able to get a first round talent into the second round you look at Ashana Zimenez of, uh, of Old Dominion a guy that potentially will go 35 to 55 there's another guy that probably in, in most of the years would go I don't know, 2022, 20, something like that. You know, you might see a Dexter Lawrence of Clemson, you know, double national champion winner, a guy who can probably play three downs, a guy who's lined up at defensive end, and he's 340 pounds. He's 340 pounds, he ran a 5.01 at the combine. I mean, that just tells you how ridiculous he is. He'll probably fall into the second round. 
you know, the Gerald Willis at Miami, guys like that, you know, Tristan Hill of UCF, there's going to be guys that you can get in the second, third round who in a lot of other years would be first round talents. That, that's the kind of the depth of, of this class. But it's all about finding what's right for you. How does player X fit system Y? And if, if they don't fit, then you're, you know, you're, you're essentially just drafting the wrong player and you're either going to get fired or that player's going to leave in free agency and you're going to be very disappointed because you'll have wasted a first-round pick. You need to either work out whether or not the guy is talented enough, like a Josh Allen out of Kentucky who can do, look, he can be a rush defensive end, he can be an outside linebacker, he can drop into coverage. Do I want him to do all that? Do I want him to just focus on rushing the pass? We had 17 sacks and 21 tackles for a loss last year. How do I want to play it? Does he fit into what I want to do? Is he, you know, would he work better in a 3-4 or a 4-3? You can't just be like, he's amazing, he's amazing. And then you get there and you think, shit, he doesn't really fit in what I want to do. You know, how are we going to maximize his talent? You know, Nick Bozer will come and he will rush the passer like his brother does. So that's fine. But you don't want to put him in a 3, you don't want to be a 3-4 defense drafting him. Is 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 Nick Bozer your number one guy? I think he's the best. I think he's the best. I, I think he's the best player in the draft. Yeah, I think he's probably the best player in the draft. I mean, I, I think it's tight, and the, there's a number of players I'm very, very high on. Josh Allen being one of them, Christian Wilkins being another, Quinn and Williams another. And I think there's a, you know, Ed Oliver of Houston. You know, I think defensively, you know, you might see seven or eight defenders go in that first round, in that in that top ten. I mean, yeah. I would not be surprised. You throw in a Devin White or you throw in a Greedy Williams, not my number one cornerback. But well, was, outside of the two quarterbacks we've mentioned, who really do we think could sneak in? Is it Drew Locke, potentially, as, as teams get desperate if two quarterbacks go off the board early? Is the are there any other offensive players who you think could sneak in there? Well, I mean, T, certainly there is a rumour that has been doing the, the, the rumour mill for a while that the Denver Broncos are very, very high on, on, on Drew Lott, the quarterback yeah. um, out of Missouri. Now, whether or not that, that stands up, uh, you know, remains to be seen. Um, I think he, you know, you look at Drew Locke, uh, big arm, Big, good size, good leader. Yeah, I mean, he's got a proper, properly big arm. I mean, we're not talking Josh Allen, but this is a, you know, he is a guy that can really grip it and uh, and rip it. So, but in high school and in Missouri, the concern for me would be that on both occasions, um, on both occasions, his offense was essentially made easier for him because he was unable to essentially assimilate all the information of a complex system. Now, if I'm an NFL general manager or if I'm an offensive coordinator, I'm very concerned that both at the high school level, where essentially it's you know not really, you know these are not in-depth playbooks, but also at the collegiate level, he was unable to get his head around the structure of a, of a collegiate offense. That would be a concern for me. Um, but you know, I look at my, look, I look at my top 10 players list in front of me right now, um, Seven of the seven of the ten are defensive players. Nick Bosa at one, Josh Allen at two, Williams at three, Oliver at four, Byron Murphy, the corner at Washington, I think is just a terrific player. Christian Wilkins at six. So the top six players are all defensive players. You've got one caller back in, in, in Kyler Murray, Josh Jacobs, the running back from Alabama, and TJ Hawkinson, the, the John Mackey Award winning tight end at ten. I think Jeffrey Simmons, the Mississippi defensive tackle at at, at nine. Even in the next ten, look, Nazir Adley at at twelve. The De- Delaware safety, Ja'Kai Polite, DeAndre Baker, Devin Bush, Devin White. You know, there's, the, the, there's defensive players everywhere. In terms of guys that could go in the top 10, I think uh, Murray definitely will. I think TJ Hawkinson is somebody that could go to Jacksonville early on. I think he could go to Green Bay at 
12, 13, wherever Green Bay pick. Um, and I think probably one of the guys to, to keep an eye on is DK Metcalf, the receiver who blew up the combine with the, you know, the huge body and the, and the 441-40. Um, he's a guy that some teams are probably going to fall in love with. How um, worried would you be with Metcalf by the three-corn drill and everything? I always look at the three-corn drill as as potentially the most important. Yeah. And this is from a Patriots perspective, I must admit. They're, they're high on quicker guys. So yeah. It's the one I always look to. But it is concerning, isn't it? A three-cone drill that's slower than Tom Brady. For, for Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again... It's systems. Are you running, you know, you look at what New England do and it's a lot of uh, crossers, it's a lot of underneath routes, there's a lot of quick out routes, there's a lot of quick in routes, slants, those sorts of things. That is not where where Metcalf makes his makes his money as it were what he does is make his money down the field now if you're if you're installing a down the field offense like a pittsburgh steelers or whatever or if you're you're drafting for that kind of thing then he potentially fits what you want to do but his inability to change direction at any pace is a concern for me but overall for me that the concern is actually what made him such a combine phenomenon in the first place which is that body i mean he's very high cut he's his musculature is is incredible his body is ridiculous he looks like a bodybuilder he doesn't yeah. look like a wide receiver he, he's had consistent injuries he had a serious neck injury at Old Miss um, and, and I would be concerned I mean this to me looks absolutely like an archetype guy who's going to struggle with muscle injuries throughout his career I just don't see I mean look maybe maybe I'm wrong but I just do not see a guy that's going to stay healthy week in and week out because he's got so much muscle to you know to be here essentially and there, you know his legs in comparison to the rest of his body don't look like they're going to be able to hold up week after. I think he's going to get lots of hamstring problems, lots of calf problems, lots of groin problems, because I think that excess weight that he's carrying on his upper half is going to be an issue for him. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you mentioned a couple of the other offensive, a couple of the other offensive guys. I want to touch upon kind of the top level guys. Uh, Josh Jacobs, a guy who I'm sure will play the audio in one of the episodes down the line. Who I spent with Will and Ollie spent kind of 20 minutes chatting to at the combine. Unbelievably impressive kid in, in every sense. Um, at the Super Bowl, does, you mean? Yeah, at the Super Bowl. Sorry, I, didn't, did I, say the <laughs> I was like, did yeah, you go to the combo? Um, yeah, at the Super Bowl. Great, great, great kid. Um, where does he land for you in terms of um, prospect rating? Obviously, I assume below Saquon Barkley, but where does he rank with maybe I'm thinking... McCaffrey guys like that the year before is he is he in and around that yeah he's kind of I mean he's a different back to McCaffrey I mean I I think he has the ability to become one of the best running backs in football Um, and you look at why well he's thick I mean he's big build he's got power but he's very elusive he's quick um and he works in all three phases of the game. He's got great hands out the backfield, and you, you watch some of his tape. You know, he, he he's not perfect as a pass protector, but he, and he needs a little bit of work. But he is more than halfway there to be to become a very good pass protector. And he will run guys over either as a blocker or as a running back. Plus, he has um, very few miles on the clock, minimal carries. Yeah, Alabama. That's, that's the big thing. I said to him, like, I, I can't think of a prospect that good that's come out with anything like that few opportunities just because they've had Damian Williams and, and obviously so many guys through what has become run back HQ like he he has almost nothing on the field. I mean it's it's remarkable I mean I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me but I mean something like 210 career carries or something ridiculous like that it's um it's astonishing because obviously sharing time with all the the backs that have come through and then more recently Najee Harris and, uh, and Damian Harris um it, it's uh you know, he to me, 
He is a guy that, I mean, look, he only had 120 carries last season. He is a guy to me that um, is primed to become a very, very good NFL player. And the final guy you mentioned, obviously, TJ Hawkinson. Yeah. I mean, he, he's a throwback. He's a throwback. You know, he, I mean, he really only burst on the scene this this past year. He's an underclassman. Noah Fant, who was the uh, his teammate at Iowa, was the the guy that everybody was talking about as a as a first rounder, um, and and you thought he was going to be the headliner, the guy that would probably go in the in the ten to fifteen to eighteen area, and all of a sudden, Hawkinson just you know, just burst onto the scene. The guy that can consistently get open against linebackers and safeties. He's got that kind of Zach Ertz mentality in the past game. The, you know, the, the, the ability to work routes and work defenders and safeties over, which, you know, is rare. But what's really rare is his work in the past game. He is an absolute destroyer. Sorry, in the run game. He is an absolute destroyer in the run game. You can line him up as an extra tackle. You can line him up, you know, if you're going to run power, he is a guy that is going to seal the edge. He will knock a defensive end on his ass. He will take a safety 10, 15 yards down the field. He's got perfect form. He knows how to use his hands. He drives, he bends his knees. Everything comes through those thighs and his, and his backside, really driving that power. He is a tremendous, tremendous run blocker. And yet he's a guy who's going to run, he ran, ran in the low four sevens. He's a guy that will get open consistently. I mean, to me, he looks like an all pro tight end you know, for a, a very long time. He's a very, very good player. And I guess that versatility as well means he can potentially have an instant impact, which is rare for tight ends. It's I very mean, rare. It's often, it's, I, think, I feel like it's the position that takes the biggest acclimatisation process from college to NFL. Or it is because a lot of coaches want tight ends to learn multiple positions. I mean, yeah. I, I take Mike Gesicki last year, drafted in the early 40s out of Penn State. Gesicki learnt the tight end position, the position that he was playing. But he also learnt H-back, he learnt fullback, he learned slot receiver, and he learned both X and Y wide receiver positions. You know, that is an awful lot for a youngster to assimilate in terms of, as well as learning how to be a pro, how to, you know, improve your blocking, how to get all those sorts of things. When you're overloaded with information, on a week-by-week -week basis, it is very difficult for you to make an impact. And, you know, I think what will happen certainly with Kasiki next year is that he will be turned into a, uh, a footballing Aaron Hernandez in terms of he will not be, you know, I think you'll see a much better player next year because he will be given one specific job to do because he'll have had that learning under his belt. I think that's why it makes it much more difficult for tight ends to really break out in, in the early years in the NFL. You do see it, obviously, but it is much more rare. Yeah, absolutely. And the final thing I want to ask, just to the the idea of this first show is just to get a little overview, a little overview. Sorry, and we're going to dig deep on these positions, dig deep on the teams as well over the, the coming few weeks. But final question I want to ask: Is this the kind of draft where you want to have, you know, ten, eleven picks, a lot of picks together, or is it the kind of draft where you'd take having like the Saints ended up with last year, where you had less picks? where you maybe a, a higher place? Because I always think there's deep drafts and there's ones where you really need to be picking in the top kind of 12 to 15 the, to get one of the guys you want. To me, the talent in this draft is really, you know, look, Green Bay, New England, they're the teams that have done it right this year. You want picks between sort of 25 and 95. If you've got three, four, five picks in that area, you're going to come yeah, out with some. Varies, have six, I think they've got six, yeah. I mean, you know, let's say you have a pick at 25, 35, 55, 75, uh, and 95. You, you know, you can see yourself coming out of there with a, 
you know, depending on what you need. But let's say you need a, you know, you need a tight end. Well, here's Noah Fant and an Irv Smith. Fant, you know, absolutely outstanding receiver down the field. He'll catch 80, 90 passes for you when he's, you know, if you, if that's what you want. Here's Irv Smith. The guy is very athletic, downfield, smooth, decent ability in the run game. You know, oh, you need a tackle. Well, I tell you what, Jonah Williams of Alabama might fall a little bit further down the field. But if you don't like that, here's how about Titus Howard of Alabama State. He's a guy that's going to remind you of Teron Armstead. You can probably get him you know, in the mid-second round. Oh, I need a guard. Well, you know, Chris Lindstrom of Boston College will smack you in the face, but he'll also run over you, uh, you know, in terms of his athletic ability. You can, you know, there's a second, third round guy. Oh, I'm looking for a, you know, a defensive tackle. Well, how about Kalen Saunders of Western Illinois, dominated at the senior bowl. You know, there's your 75th overall pick. Oh, and I, you know, I need a cornerback. Well, I tell you what, I've got a guy here in Sean Bunting of Central Michigan or Isaiah Johnson, the former wide receiver of Houston. You can, take Johnson with your 95th pick and all of a sudden you, you know you, you might have come out with five or six starters I think yeah. for, for me if you've got those number of picks in a draft that is so deep in the sort of 25 to 30 up to 90 100 pick area you you know if you get that right you could be set up you know you could you, you, like I said you can come out with five or six starters it's uh, you know that's where the depth is yeah, that's great, Si. So we'll, we'll, we will be back um, a few times over the next few weeks. We're not sure how regularly we're going to pump these out. But if anyone's got any questions, ask us them on Twitter. You've got full access to, to Si that we wouldn't usually have. So if you've got any questions about prospects or anything like that, we will get to them. And yeah, keep listening. We'll, uh, we'll break down this draft better than ever before. Four days like no other. A festival like no other. For a bookmaker like no other. Betfred. Get up to £40 in free bets when you sign up using promo code CHELT40 and stake £10 on any Cheltenham race. Betfred. At the heart of Cheltenham. 18 plus. New UK customers only. Available from March 6th to March 13th. £30 free bets credited within 10 hours of first bet settlement. Extra £10 free bets credited if first bet loses. Full terms at betfred.com slash promotions. Keep it fun. BeGambleAware.org.